Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. When I look at the instrument and I see one note playing to the next, to the next, to the next, I can see that it's drawing pictures. And I developed an ability as an adult to be able to communicate it to people that allows them to see music as I do. People having that ability to see music in terms of shapes and patterns completely transforms how quickly they're able to connect to their natural musicianship, how quickly they're able to learn how to play. I've been pursuing money to one day do what I love and what I think I belong to. And it occurred to me as a broken equation. No, I should be doing what I love. And if there is divine design to this, and if it is meant to be, uh, will reveal a pathway and that it will feel authentic. You develop practices where you are constantly talking about where are we at? Here's what I see, here's what I'm up to. You know, I said I was going to do this, but things have changed. I feel fundamentally different about it. Here's where I'm heading. And it's like, okay, I get that. I can get behind that. I can support that. Anyone can get old at any age. Well, getting old starts when you start stopping, really. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep growing. Hi there, this is Fei Wu, and I'm the host of this Face World podcast. I'm so thrilled that you are here, and welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week, we have a regular interview episode with Neil Moore. Neil is the founder and executive director of the Simply Music Institute of Learning and Education. He's also the creator of the Simply Music Piano Method, which is a playing-based music learning method Neil believes that every single person is profoundly musical. Simply Music Piano Method is to break the melody of a song into a simple melody diagram that will have you instantly remember how to play it. Born in 1957 in Melbourne, Australia, Neil began studying the piano at the age of seven. He has since then spent most of his life actively involved in a playing-based music learning and teaching environment. Simply Music is an international organization with teachers and students from around the world. There is a free self-study guide on their website, simplymusic.com, as well as a teacher's training program. But we only spend about a third of our conversation on music because Neil also has a business in helping you understand behavioral mechanics, where he presents a new way of understanding our behaviors related to problem, addiction, want, don't want, our feeling, and neurochemistry. In addition to this audio podcast, we've also created a video you can access on our blog, faceworld.com, so you can watch Neil walk through his process. Since age 19, he has been on the trajectory to understand the design of people because he had to deal with a lot of his own struggles with food, weight, exercise, struggles with his business, and also relationship. Addictive behaviors have real consequences. Neil believes that we're only touching the surface of understanding our very own behavioral mechanics. With the model he has introduced, we'll have a much better chance to get to the roots. 
This is an unusual conversation for Face World, and I guess for me, I must say, I don't recall really diving in human psychology with many guests. Even though mindset, overcoming limiting beliefs are part of the show a lot of the time, I'm fascinated by people like Neil who not only observe through their own experiences, but are good at summarizing, distilling, and expanding upon what they've learned to help others. So without further ado, please welcome Neil Moore to the Phase World podcast. Neil Moore, thank you so much for joining the Face World podcast. And I'm so appreciative of Michael Roderick for introducing you to me. Um, so before we get started, clearly you you live in the States now, but you're actually not originally from here. So could you tell us a bit about your origin and maybe your origin stories as well? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm 62 years of age this year. Uh, I was born in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, emigrated with my wife and our three children to the United States in 1994, so that was over 25 years ago, and uh, came here to pursue a, a to launch an organization uh, and, um, and, and materialize an idea that I had about music and music education. Uh, from a very, very early age, about three or four years of age, I, uh, I became aware of the fact that I hear music as I familiarize myself with music. I see it in terms of two and three dimensional shapes. And so um, growing up in a musical household, I'm the youngest of five kids. There's only seven years between the five of us. And for each of my older brothers, when we turned seven, we began piano lessons. So by the time I was born, piano was all already being learned and played in the home every day. I had a very strong ear for music, I think, as a result of that. But and then this recognition of uh, music in terms of shapes and patterns by you know the age of three or four, and then when I began studying piano at the age of seven, my teacher would play, and as he would play the songs that I was to be learning, I could see those same shapes and patterns that I'd previously pictured in my mind's eye. I could actually see them played across the instrument. How? What type of shapes are you seeing? I'm just curious. Well, it's um, it's not ethereal. People say, "Oh, that's synesthesia," but it's more simple than that. It's a little bit like if if we were to go out to uh, the sky at nighttime and we look up and see a sky of stars, but someone points out and says, "See that bright star?" And then the one to the right, and then the one beneath it, and they can actually identify some stars that come together now as a constellation. And we can look up at the sky now. Oh, there's that star, and we can. We can distinguish out of the sky a particular constellation, a shape or a pattern. It's sort of like that, that one of the things that in any country in the world where music is taught formally, there's a predominant approach and the the traditional, uh, most typical approach to learning how to play music is by firstly teaching students how, how to read music. And one of the things about that, now, I actually think that's one of the problems with music education, that when you now look at music and treat it as a math and, and start by firstly learning how to decode symbols on the page, it accesses the brain very differently. In its most organic and natural state, the brain is a pattern-seeking device. And really, this perspective is all about the ability to recognize shapes and patterns. And so what happens with me is that when I look at the instrument and I see one note playing to the next, to the next, to the next, I can see that it's drawing pictures. And I developed an ability as an adult to be able to communicate it to people that allows them to see music as I do. And then I discovered in that process that in 
people having that ability to see music in terms of shape, in terms of shapes and patterns, completely transforms how quickly they're able to connect to their natural musicianship, how quickly they're able to learn how to play, uh, you know, the quantity, the quality of music, how quickly it is and how easy it is to learn how to play really great sounding music immediately, anybody. Do you think it happened to you naturally when you were just a little kid? I know this particular skill developed rather early on. Did you have an urge to memorize it, but memorize the music better? Or was it something missing in perhaps the teaching that you engage with and then you just realized there was a better way to do it? Do you have any recollection of that? That way of hearing music and seeing it in terms of shapes and patterns, that was with me before I was even conscious of my own existence. My mother says that even as a very young infant, um, I had a particular affinity to music that was more evident than my older siblings. So if music was playing down one end of the house, I would roll down to where, to where the music was and I would just lie there transfixed. So I went to another part of the house and turned the music on. I would roll down to there. There was some organic, it was like in my DNA, there was some relationship to music that was more dominant in me. Then this perspective of, uh, of hearing music and seeing shapes and patterns. I was ashamed of that because my older brothers were all learning traditionally. They were learning how to read and they were all playing well, but I didn't have that relationship. Reading was confusing. I saw no need for it. I didn't need it. And so I just had this relationship with shapes and patterns. My teacher would play the songs I was to be learning. I could orally remember them the songs. I could see it in terms of shapes and patterns. I'd reconstruct the song that way during the week. But as we got close to, you know, Saturday for my music lesson, I'd get more and more anxious. Like, is this the week where I'm going to get found out as being a fraud because I'm not learning how I'm supposed to be learning, which was learning how to read music. So, you know, my lesson, I'd just sort of sit there blankly staring at the page, but reconstructing it all in shapes and patterns. And I actually didn't learn to read or learn anything about the theory of music and the math of music until I was in my 30s. I always knew that I belonged to music. But, and, and I always knew that I wanted to do music, but I didn't even know what that meant. And certainly in Australia, you know, Australia is the same physical size as the United States. But, you know, we're only talking about 18 million people there and there's hundreds of millions of people here. There aren't the same opportunities. It's more complicated to try to develop a profession around music. So I came from a family of self, self-employed people. And so I didn't pursue music professionally. I got into restaurants and I owned restaurants in Australia. Wow. And then you had to drop, leave all that behind to come to the States and, and start fresh. I'd gotten into the restaurant industry. I had you know several restaurants, but it's a strange thing to be uh, successful at something, but unsatisfied. And that's what the experience was like. You know, I, I bought the, my first restaurant. It was a very success, already in a successful restaurant that had been established a long time. Took it over from an, a, you know, a known chef, uh, built the business very quickly, learned very early on that people were hungrier for recognition than they were food. And uh, any business I've ever had, I've, I've built my businesses based on relationships. I love people and uh, I love the interaction with with people. And I, I saw how critically important that was. And so I always made sure that I had a team of people, all of my staff, didn't matter whether they're in the kitchen or front of house, I had really beautiful people working for me. And that created a particular energy and that grew successful businesses. But even though they were successful, I was unsatisfied. So I was like, well, what should I do? Okay, I'm unsatisfied. Maybe I should get another one. You know, maybe I should get another one. And sort of it ended up taking a path where I ended up trying a bunch of different things. And um, the sort of stock market crash of the late 80s when that hit Australia, uh, I, we, we just lost everything. It was a wipeout, a complete financial wipeout. And I, I remember there was a day where I had 
two epiphanies. Uh, there was this particular day where, you know, they, they had trucks and they were taking away our cars. The house was being sold and they were, they were putting a board, like a for sale board outside the home. And I remember looking at that and thinking, I'm losing everything that I have, but I'm losing nothing of who I am. The other thing is I saw this equation and it even seemed almost like it was visual in front of me. I saw, oh, wow, I've been pursuing money to one day do what I love and what I think I belong to. And it occurred to me as a broken equation. Suddenly occurred to me that, no, I should be doing what I love. And if there is divine design to this, and if it is meant to be, then I'm going to just trust that, you know, God, the universe, whatever, uh, will reveal a pathway and that it will feel authentic and true. And, uh, and I just said, that's it. From this day forward, I'm going to commit myself to doing what I love. Have you always felt that way? I mean, you know, I, I think it's interesting. People, a lot of people say part of that is genetic. Like some people are born more optimistic and some people, you know, or learn to be either from their family or friends or from their own experiences. Uh, I think in my, in my outward personality, I presented very optimistically, but I also think I was a little bit of like house angel, street devil. My general nature is one of, you know, well-being and optimistic. I, I do believe that I, I am optimistic by design. I, I also think that the flip side of that, of those issues that I've struggled with, I'm really grateful for those. Uh, you know, I've, I've had all sorts of issues and struggles with um, different types of addiction. and mm-hmm. I had long-term inappropriate relationships with, you know, food and alcohol and weed and narcotics and things like that. And it's not really been until much later in life that I've learned how to address those. And at some point in time, I'd like to even tell you a little bit about my wife because there's there, there's the role that she has played, an extraordinary role that she's played. Yeah, let's in. talk about it. I mean, that... I uh, We met on November the 21st, 1970 at 2 p.m. I remember the moment. I had just turned 13 and she had just turned 12 years of age. And we met through a mutual friend. We didn't go to school together. In fact, we lived on other sides of the city. But we had this day where we were going ice skating and her friend, who I knew through my sister, she said, I'm going ice skating. I'll bring a friend and you bring a friend from school. And so the four of us rocked up and I shook hands with my wife and I just had this experience like I had come home. You know, I've always had this outward appearance of being very comfortable with people, but I'm an introvert. And, uh, and I'm shy and, uh, but, and I'm uncomfortable around people all the lots of ways, but I felt at ease around her and I have literally loved her. Well, it's 17,601 days ago. Hey, so, um, we're in our 49th year of having this extraordinary relationship. We married, you know, 38 years ago and, uh, she's amazing. The, the gifts that I was given with regards to my worldview which have come hand in hand with all sorts of complexities and all sorts of issues and all sorts of of challenges. And so I feel like I was imbued with the opportunity to to realize or materialize some gifts and and go through all sorts of of, uh, complexities in life as a result. And, you know, and the payoff was that I'm going to give you Hunter as your wife and, you know, you're, and I experienced myself as being the wealthiest person that I know. It's Faye from Faye's World. Today on the show, we have Neil Moore from Simply Music. Simply Music Piano Method is a playing-based music learning method because Neil believes that every single person is profoundly musical. He can teach anyone, parents, kids, or anyone who wants to learn to play music at any age. 
We also dove into behavioral mechanics, where Neil presents a new way of understanding our behaviors related to problem, addiction, want, don't want, our feeling, and neurochemistry. That is like the most authentic love story I've heard because so much of, <laughs> I'm sure your wife has heard this directly from you and on other shows and you've been part of. But you know, a lot of the times, the beauty that the descriptions, at least, that I've heard of,、uh, maybe it's just maybe has something to do with I don't know my age or some of the people I'm referring to. Some are younger than I am, and it's so driven by beauty. It's、so driven by just kind of the outward quality, something that you can see. But you, what you're describing and everything you could feel, how do you detach yourself or kind of look at not only your wife? I think she's taught you something that it's not just you know it's not just your relationship, but your relationship with other people as well. well yeah, I mean.、Um... I, I don't own my wife, right? My my job is to have her be the very best, fully self-expressed version of herself that she can possibly be, and so、uh, and she she sees that about that her being her job, you know, w- with me, and and so it's sort of like three entities. There's me as an individual, there's she as an individual, and then there's us as as a unified individual. That sounds a little weird, but that synergy,、um, in, in our case, it. Works for us,、uh, you know. As part of your consulting service, you help other people really come home to themselves. I actually like what you said about. I feel like I see you know, when I see you, I see home, and、um, because you guys have been in a relationship. Well, let's just count day one for almost fifty years, forty nine years. Some of the counterintuitive things, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show are in, in relationships or are married. Uh, some for a long time, like how to keep the, so trite. This is how to keep a marriage alive or a long-term relationship alive. What you know? What are your answers to that? Or,、uh, well, it's. I think it's a. It's simple, but it's really important that when I say simple, it doesn't mean easy. They're very, very different worlds. So simple. I. I think in our, as far as we're concerned, there are just a few components. In fact, we tend to think of it in terms of a relationship trinity, three components being likability. Alignment and clarity. So, what I mean by that uh, uh, is, you know, if you're going to hang out with someone for forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty years, it works if you like each other. So, the love will take care of itself, but you bump up against likability on a moment by moment, day by day basis. The habits and idiosyncrasies and mannerisms and those things are incredibly important because they they impact the climate of the relationship. And when I say climate, if we just simplify it in terms of hot weather, like heated with one another, or cold weather, distant and not communicating, whereas there's a really cozy, great warm warm spot in the middle. Likability has an extraordinary degree of impact on having just that beautiful climax, and that it is something that you can actually、uh, work on. Now, there's all sorts of practices and and ways of doing that, but、um, but it is simpler than people think, and and so we consider that to be a critical component of the of the relationship trinity. The other one is alignment. Like we're in a, a unique era these days, anything can work. Anything works. Any relationship configuration works if it works. If you and your partner are in agreement with 
however it looks, and it works for you both, then that's what matters. Part of the problem we see is that as people go through their life, they hold on to the expectation that the person should be the same. We are constantly evolving. My, I never want to know my wife. You'd think after nearly 49 years that I would know her. But for me, it's like she evolves, she changes, and I love that. I never want to know her. I want to constantly be continually surprised by how she can grow and alter and change. And I, I want to be behind that happening. I'm not looking to hold on to her being a fixed way of being that suits me at any particular time, given time in my state of personal development. It's up to me to, to remain likable and interesting and desirable as we both grow. And so that means that as we grow and our perspective changes, these are webs. You get an alteration of perspective, it affects every thread of the web. And so how what becomes critical is that you, you develop practices where you are constantly talking about where are we at? Here's what I see. Here's what I'm up to. You know, I said I was going to do this, but things have changed. I feel fundamentally different about it. Here's where I'm heading. And it's like, okay, I get that. I can get behind that. I can support that. It doesn't really matter what your version of it is, provided that there is a conscious input towards clear, you know, open communication, honest communication, and working towards finding alignment. And you know what? What's great about that is if you get to a stage where this is where I'm at and, I, and here's where I'm at and these aren't aligned, well, great. Now we can talk about, well, do we still want to hang out together or given that we're not aligned, is that fundamentally a difference in direction where it's time for us to, to no longer hang out together? That, that can happen as well and that can happen um, with a, a level of com comfort and clarity as well, although neurologically, you, you know, when you in, inhabit someone for so long, and I love it, and it's very um, I welcome you to talk about this. And I know that you know for most people that it can be challenging. It's one thing to help other people, but it's the other to kind of look inside yourself and your relationship. And do you have an example or an instance where you know finding alignment? I think that's the biggest struggle for most relationships. That do you recall a moment where? maybe it's a disagreement between you and your wife and how, and what's the process of, is it coming to the middle? Is it finding a, a midpoint somewhere and compromise and how do you process or how did you process that? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really great thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. I've actually, we've had an extraordinary friendship always. And, and generally part of the quality that's underscored our relationship has always been uh, we both value politeness and and gratitude, and you know we're courteous and respectful, and we still say please and thank you, and uh, you know we have a great friendship and there's great comfort in in that friendship. Uh, having said that, there's also great affection between my wife and I, and we've always been a very affectionate couple, always touching, holding. It's just something that we both feel a, mag a certain magnetism towards with one another. However, there have been, uh, particularly in the early stages, Hunter was never as uh, intimately sexually self-expressed. She just wasn't drawn to that. And, you know, th that is a story in and of itself. Um, but there was a period of time, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years ago, where that had become an issue for me and a concern for me in our relationship. And we would have opportunities to talk about that. But it was one of those things where we, we hadn't achieved uh, alignment in practice, even though there'd been clarity in communication. And as we got older, that just became an issue for me. I wanted more physical intimacy. 
it was an issue in a relationship that that wasn't there. And there was a time where it's like, well, I'm clear that I'm never leaving her. I'm committed to this woman being in my life, a part of my life for all of my life. And never has that been in question. I'm also very clear the depth of my love for her. It, it, it's extraordinary to me how it can continue to deepen. However, there wasn't an alignment. And so it was one of those things where it's like, I'm in a bind. The, uh, the, our agreement was there was no intimacy, you know, no relationships outside of the relationship, but there was also no inter- intimacy inside of the relationship. And I remember talking and saying, look, I'm never leaving. I'm not going anywhere. And, and at the same point in time, I see that I don't have the right to require that you change. But if that isn't something that we're able to reconcile, then it's something that I would need to fulfill outside of the relationship. And it has no bearing on how I want to be around you, how much I love you. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was in, uh, one of those times where I talked about the Trinity, likability, alignment. The third leg of Trinity is clarity, where, where the communication must be very, very clear towards achieving that alignment. And so this was just one of those conversations where I'm not going anywhere. I, I promise you I'll be with you for the rest of my life and it's an honour and a privilege to be. I love you to the depths of my soul, but this isn't working for me and it's something that I, I don't expect you. I can't ask you to change. It's wrong of me to even do that, but I need to satisfy it outside of that. And that was one of those things where for Hunter, it was like, is that something that I can be okay with? The bigger question is, is it time for me to, to discover who I need to become in order to transform this? And so she thought about that for a while and came back and said, well, why don't we go on a pilgrimage and really just together see if we can learn about uh, this and transform our relationship to our own physical intimacy and take it up to an entirely new level. And it became a massive direction change for her. She ended up um, doing all sorts of fringe studies and she becomes her profession. I just remember that. That's right. Yeah. So then on that pathway, she's trained in so many modalities and disciplines. Uh, but then along the pathway, she felt that hypnotherapy could play a very unique role. And she became a hypnotherapist, a clinical hypnotherapist. And uh, she, she took on, look, I've known physically that my commitment is every year I get older, I'm going to get younger. Every year I get older, I'm going to get more vital, more alive, physically stronger, more flexible. I'm not going the I'm not going the traditional paradigm of you know, I mean, getting old. Anyone can get old at any age. Like getting old starts when you start stopping, really. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep growing. And for her, it was like, well, that also the the typical paradigm of as we get older, we get less inclined, uh, less sexual which I tend to think it's more about. We start turning on all sorts of off switches, and there's a way of I mean, thanks for sharing that. And clearly, you know, she made a change. But I think what's important about the story is that it was her decision to make that change. And it was you who brought the conversation, the question forward in a very honest way. I I think most people, most relationships will not have that level of confidence and transparency for someone to actually sit down and have that conversation. Instead, um, we just assume, you know, our partner might not be able to even take this conversation with this conversation may just end the relationship. Um, you know, I've had friends who approach me with from different, different ages who had the same question. And some really surprised me because I remember people are as young as in their twenties, they're very fit and they, you know, they met each other only about a year ago. Like how could the intimacy die down so early? But it was truly an issue that Red Per, you know, kind of 
is present in many relationships. Um, but I'm, I, I think it's a very happy ending too. And also it's given us the privilege and the opportunity to, um, to, have, to be able to work with people. You know, that's one of the things that uh, Hunter's predominant focus is her practice, which deals almost exclusively in the areas of intimacy and sexuality, whether it's men, women, or any, any couple's configuration. Well, so that, that's very much her, her playground. And um, I mean, well, it's not common, firstly, for people to have had the best part of 50 years of a relationship and best, you know, coming up this part of 40 years of marriage and to being able to maintain such a uniquely high degree of satisfaction <clears throat> within the relationship and then also be able to distill it down to there are really very few components if you understand how to work with them, how to distill them and work with them. And then, but the critical thing, of course, is understanding how, you know, there is, um, for the most part, you know, the design of human beings, we, we are addicts and, um, you know, that gets us into this whole other area. But, you know, we get very attached to the complexities and the problems and the conflicts in our relationships. And they're, they're serving a need that is ordinarily not apparent. And so as much as coming over here to launch my idea about, you know, music, you know, I, I've, I've had the fortune of being able to turn that into a, a multinational organization. We've got teachers in about 700 teachers in 12 countries and we have thousands of students in about 92 countries and I, I sort of run that organization. And so I get the opportunity, one, most of our educators are self-employed. I get that opportunity to coach people in that area. But we also get the opportunity to be able to work with people in the area of relationship. But it's also afforded me this opportunity to have a chance to look at, I mentioned earlier, I'm sort of an addict. Well, not sort of, I've had all sorts of addictions, but in most recently, last several years, um, my whole understanding of that has changed dramatically and I've had some insights in that area that have completely transformed my relationship to my own addictions as well as those of other people. Hey, it's Faye from Faye's World. Today on the show, we have Neil Moore from Simply Music. Simply Music Piano Method is a playing-based music learning method because Neil believes that every single person is profoundly musical. He can teach anyone, parents, kids, or anyone who wants to learn to play music at any age. We also dove into behavioral mechanics where Neil presents a new way of understanding our behaviors related to problem, addiction, want, don't want, our feeling, and neurochemistry. I love to learn more about that as I began to learn in our last conversation. So I call this whole conversation behavioral mechanics. I've had an interest in the design of behavior since I was 19 years of old, when I first, 19 years of age, when I first had an extraordinary experience in working with a psychiatrist. It was a life changing experience for me. And it also set me on a tra trajectory of really wanting to understand the design of people. I've always had to, to deal with that because I've, as I said earlier, I've had struggles with food and my weight and being, you know, bouncing up and down, you know, exercise and don't exercise, you know, str struggle with business and then have ease. It's all up and down. Uh, excessive use of alcohol, excessive use of weed, you know, in different times of my life, uh, excessive use of uh, prescription narcotics, clearly addictive behavior surrounding all of those. And I'm grateful for that dimension of myself because I also understand that the organization that I've built was contributed to by that, by that addictive mindset. 
But the flip side of it is that it, it has had a real consequence in my life. Uh, I've been fortunate that I've been able to sort of have a high degree of harm containment. The, the majority of the harm has been self-contained and it's not like I've sort of delivered it and dropped it onto other people. What I'm talking about here in this conversation, I believe includes everybody. I actually don't think anybody escapes this. But I want to have a, a conversation about, now, just to be clear, when I'm talking about problems, I'm not talking about incidents like, you know, I've got to lead an event tomorrow and I've just fallen over and broken my leg and the doctor says I can't lead the event. I'm talking about those problems that you and I and everybody else faces every day, whatever that might be. You know, I'm annoyed in my relationship. She always does this or she says that or I get so angry when he does this or he's always angry or I'm sick of fighting or the kids are always you know, making me pull my hair out or my business, I'm struggling, I can't earn enough. It doesn't really matter, but we all have this array of, of this totality of complications and I'm just going to call that problems. Now, regardless of the complexity of the problems, and we know that humans have the ability to, we think in layers and we think in complexities. We also develop very comprehensive explanations. We have very complex justifications. I'm going to simplify it and say, we could take any problem and ultimately we could distill it down to two things. Either there is a want that is not being met or a want that's not happening, or there is a don't want that is happening. And the same problem can be seen through those two perspectives. So I've got a problem. That's what's the problem. Okay, we're fighting in our relationship. Okay, well, what's the want that's not happening? Well, I want it to be more placid and that's not happening. What's the don't want? Well, I don't want to be fighting and that is happening. So we, we could look at the same problem through the, the respective lens of it, it being a want that's not happening or a don't want that is happening. And bear in mind when I'm outlining, outlining this, this is really important. You don't have to believe this. I am not saying that this is true. I don't even know whether there is such a thing as truth. It seems to me like it's all an interpretation really. But I don't need anybody who's looking at this or hearing this to believe what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that I, I want you to just put this on like a pair of glasses that you can take off at any time. But if you just consider your issues from this perspective, you'll be the one to determine whether it offers any insight or any sort of opening. Now, whenever you want something that isn't happening or we want we don't want something that is happening, it leaves us feeling a particular way. It's it's a crappy feeling. It's any version of annoyed, frustrated, upset, sad, angry, depressed, frustrated, thwarted. No one's got a problem saying, I'm thrilled. This is just so wonderful for me. I love this. That's not our relationship. If that's happening, it's not a problem. I'm talking about the things that are crappy. We know they're crappy. As effective and as valuable and as important as it is, there are so many models of therapy and coaching and guiding and counseling and mentoring that work in these arenas here. We could look at the problem and go, okay, so let's, let's get into this problem. What's going on? Can you clarify the problem? Are you clear about the problem? Have you articulated the problem? Are you struggling communicating the problem? Maybe we need to work on your communication. Maybe you need to get better expressing what the problem is. So there's a whole world of, of approaches that would deal with getting into the nitty gritty of the problem and getting a better handle on that. Not only do I believe that it's not getting to the heart of the issue, I don't think it's even coming close. 
I would consider all of this to be what I'll just call above the radar. And, and I, there is a whole other world that is going on underneath this that I think we need to understand. And in, if we can understand it, we may just find that it offers us a completely different insight and perspective. Whenever we have a problem that is a want that's not happening or a don't want that is happening, that leaves us feeling a particular way, those feelings are underscored by neurochemistry. They are chemically driven. There's a chemical structure underneath the feeling, a chemical structure to the feeling. This neurochemistry is intense. It's highly corrosive. It, it burns very deep neural pathways. And what happens is we develop addictions to the neurochemistry. If I'm working with any person, it takes very little time to be able to get out of the story of the problem, to get out of the complexities of the wants and don't wants, to get out of all of the feeling and just go, I get it about the feeling, but I need you to look at this from a different perspective. Firstly, those feelings that we feel are not new to us. This is not a new occurrence. If we look at it, those feelings, a version of those feelings has been with us for a very, very long time. Yeah. So what would be an, what would be an example of an addiction? You know, I, I feel like I can think of something like we have the, te- I, I think it's almost a relationship with when people say you have the tendency to do something like that. And even for some things that we do in our lives, it's almost predictable by ourselves. And we tend to go there and tend to dwell on it. It's almost... It's almost like a hap, quote unquote happy place. Yeah, I mean, we establish very intimate relationships and, and lifelong friendships with our problems. So, what I am saying is that the establishment of this framework, this is not an addiction that just got established because I've got this problem in my relationship. If we get into this, we will discover that there were incidents that occurred at a very young age. I'm actually of a view that one of the things that we'll um, develop a deeper understanding of as we move forward is that the foundation of these addictions begin uh, in the womb. The difference between a want and, and, and a need is that a want is optional, but a need is not optional. Food is not optional. Water is not optional. Air is not optional, nor is addiction. Addiction will override your best effort, but the very best that your identity can produce. Addiction is not, is not optional. So what happens is we need to create problems. We have an addiction. Well, an addiction to what? That, well, the truth of the matter is if I create problems, the problem is actually a solution. We think of them as problems. In fact, I say that the problem with problems is thinking that the problem is the problem because it's not a problem. It's a solution. A solution to what? Well, it's a solution to the fact that it feeds the addiction. The addiction to what? The addiction to the neurochemistry. Well, how do I get the neurochemistry? Well, you get the neurochemistry by having these particular feelings. Well, how do I get the feelings? By making sure that you've got a want or a don't want happening in your life that will leave you feeling that way. Well, how do I get the want or the don't want? Well, you've got to actually orchestrate circumstances that appear to you as though they are a problem. You know, as a means of feeding the addiction. And not only that, we need to make sure that you aren't aware of the fact that this is an addiction. It has to be set up in a way where the brain can have us think that, the, that, it's, that it's dealing with a problem. And so these play out in extraordinary ways. 
all these decisions that we make are always a version of something being wrong with us, something broken. We're just not enough. So what is my question here uh, is then how could someone tell uh, the difference between a real problem versus um, something that you manufacture or manifest on your own? And so w what happens here is that we develop very, very complex ways. It's a masterful thing. Addiction is extraordinary. It's, you know, it's like this 300-pound gorilla that you're getting in the ring with. It will allow you to address a problem. Like, I'm overweight. We know people can go and address their weight and lose weight and keep it off. That happens. I mean, for most people, it's a yo-yo, but other people, like, they resolve that. And it leaves us with the illusion that we have actually addressed the problem. And in some respects, we have. But when we, what we're really doing is the brain, when it's dealing with addiction, it will replace and displace. If it can't get the chemistry now from uh, losing weight, it'll just take that neurochemistry and it will displace it onto other issues, or it will it will orchestrate the emergence of another seemingly very different problem that it looks like it's completely unrelated, but ultimately what's the same is there is a want or a don't want that leaves you feeling a particular way, and that's the same feeling that's been there all along, and that's neurochemical addiction. I know that it's a process of um, treating someone. Um, is there anything that people can work on or even just begin to think about with or without success in terms of how they break that connection or how they can begin to work towards that? And, and part of my concern, for example, I know friends, um, something happened to them when they were young, three, four, five years old. And I know that also, I know I also, for example, my, when my mom was pregnant with me, she was under a tremendous amount of stress. She had relationship issues with my dad. And she, it's something that this recurring theme that I've been told for over 30 years, right? And I know something happened, but I'm also worried that how do we detach ourselves and say, you know what, I'm, I need to be responsible. I want to solve this. You know, I wasn't in control of what happened you know, when I was a baby. So how do people approach that? Yeah. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for the question because it's so important. And, uh, and the second thing about it is that, uh, that I, I have found that this is a process. I don't want anything about what I'm saying. I don't think of myself as this is not therapy. I'm not qualified to do that. I'm an individual with my own struggles that, that in, in reframing this, in developing this interpretation, it has transformed my experience uh, of myself and my life. And it's given me the ability to be able to develop an entirely new relationship with, with issues and problems. And I think that there's four parts to it. And, you know, quite simply, I would say, firstly say the reveal, we need to reveal the extent to which this addiction encompasses our lives. Quite honest, we begin that process by, by just looking through this lens. As we continue to do that, we start to see, wow, I, uh, I can't see an area of my life where it isn't playing out. And that is the most consistent experience for people. When they really start to look at it through this lens, it gives them a, a different perspective on everything. The second thing is this model itself, that it's very important to understand the model, that there very often problems arise and they seem and feel and look like they are new problems. And so because they're new, we think that they belong to the present and we, and we try to address them in the present, but they're not present problems. These are replays. The circumstances have been uniquely designed. 
But trying to resolve an incident that occurred in childhood that is manifesting and materializing in the present is what I call swimming in the vortex of impossible resolution. You will not really solve the problem in the present if you think the problem is the problem. You might address it circumstantially, but the addiction will replace and and you'll be celebrating your victory. But meanwhile, your your addiction is doing push-ups in the backyard. And what will happen is it will displace that chemistry onto other issues or wait a while and allow you to bask in the feeling like you've solved the problem and then it will re-emerge. So part of the way of of beginning to get a handle on this is understanding the structure of this model. Problem is a want and a don't want. Valuable to just distill it very simply in simple language. Understand that when you stop and think, if you can just start to develop a physiological sensitivity to this chemistry, you will see the presence of this feeling. Once you understand the, the model of this model, if you are willing to look at it through the point of view of, uh, of this particular structure that I'm presenting, then the next part is really what I call the web. Where is this playing out in my life? I can see the big ticket items, but when I start to look at it, there's extraordinary similarity between the big ticket items and these little low-hanging fruits. So we need to really be willing to just get into the ring with this and start to get our hands and head around the extent to which this is playing out in our life. And then at, thereafter, we can get into what I'll call the unravel. The, the, the really important thing here is to see, wow, if this is addiction and we begin to threaten it, your brain's going to freak out. So there's a very easy way of being able to tell, am I on the money here? And that is by looking at the low-hanging fruit. I think it's really fascinating. I think people who will reach out to you will have an open mind to begin with. I think people who do the outreach reach will be the people who have a higher capacity to accept a change in their lives or perhaps more ready. And, and, and I know that I think that separation between yourself and the incident, it's really important. I think that process, how you get there uh, is also important. And, you know, working with someone and, you know, coming home to someone, actually be able to trust that person and get to the bottom of it is, um, is quite important. So my, my pleasure. These, uh, I don't know. I don't know light, fun ways of having these conversations. Hi there, it's me again. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you were able to learn a few things. If you enjoyed what you heard, it would be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Face World podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Face World podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support.